0: Today's episode is part one of a two part conversation with Jess, a good friend and former co worker from Light Patrol. In this first part, Jess talks about the connection between anxiety and her faith, the struggle to believe she is lovable, her work reaching out to homeless youth, and the different factors that led to the development of a serious eating disorder. You're listening to Through a Glass Darkly, the podcast about following Jesus while living with a mental illness. If you ask Jess, she'll say that the first time she met me, she was convinced that I didn't like her. Of course, this wasn't true, and it wasn't long before we were making silly jokes and telling each other about random YouTube videos. But I also saw that combined with that playfulness, which I really appreciated around the office, she was also thoughtful and honest. Jess is a person who refuses to accept easy answers about faith, and she loves people deeply and makes it a point of showing them that love. I've so appreciated her and her husband's friendship, and I'm really excited to share our conversation with you today. Trigger warning, in this episode, we do talk about bulimia. So I am here with my good friend, Jess, today. Jess mm-hmm. is a former coworker from Light Patrol. Um, she moved on a few years ago, and she's now a foster mom extraordinaire, a cashier, and a life coach. So thank you, Jess, for being uh, being with us today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) So why don't we just start with a very general question around what did faith look like (laughs) in your family growing up and kind of what was your first introduction to Jesus?
1: So I grew up in a very Christian home, like um, very, very conservative Christian home. So I would say like, I don't remember there being a time where it wasn't a huge part of our life. We were the family that like, very wholesome, like just a very, I have three older sisters, mom and a dad, and every morning before going to school, like we would have family devotions, and we were there every Sunday for church, and then Bible study on Friday nights, youth group, like all the things, all the Sunday school, summer camps were, you know, a Bible camp in our town that I would always go to, and so like I really don't have any like separation of knowing, you know, kind of when I wasn't, Um, around that or it didn't even know non-Christians I don't think like it was very much like this is what this you know this is the only way there is (laughs) this is the only kinds of people there and stuff so yeah
0: Jesus was always a part of Mm -hmm. the environment that you grew up in was there one specific moment where I mean they, they use the phrase it became real for you but that you would say okay it just wasn't it became more than just a part of your family. It actually became something that you aligned with.
1: Yeah. Like I said, like that would have been a very much the culture of my family. And so, (laughs) yeah. Like you want to know my story about my, like, is this my conversion story? Is that what this is?
0: If that's, if that's what you want to call it. Yeah, sure.
1: Well, this would be, yeah. Okay. So you do know this story, but I'll tell it. So I would say, so a little bit of background would be that I was a very, very anxious, very nervous child about going to school. Yeah. So my earliest memories of like kindergarten and school and everything was being very, very terrified of things getting out of hand in the classroom. So being really, really scared about like, like supervision and being like, mom, this isn't like, I would come home from school and be like, this is not, this is not like it is at home. Like I had a really sheltered type of home life, right? Like everything I just described, like my church life, my home life. And then school was terrifying to me because I feel like it was my first exposure that I remember to pain and like, and seeing like bullying and seeing like social dynamics of children and just different things and recess and trying to, you know, and I I felt like so many things got like we um, were just under the radar, I guess. Like, so people weren't. So, I, my big thing was my mom always jokes about saying that, like, I kept telling her there was a lack of supervision. So, anyways, so my mom would have to come and like supervise recess so that I could feel secure at school <laughs> for like the first long, <laughs> a long, like longer than should have been. But, anyways, grade three, this would have been my like big moment, I guess. Um, but, grade three, there was a bully in the class and his name was Brady. And he did exactly what like bullies in movies do, where he was like, you know, if you give me your cookies at lunch in like the cloakroom, like come into the cloakroom and give me your cookies, um, then I'm not going to bully you today and I'll let you go. Right. And he was a really big kid. I was really small, whatever. So anyways, all that to say, like he was not, he was not a nice person. He was really mean. And then there was one day where we were all in our quadrants in the classroom and it was a crossword and we were all working on these crosswords. And then Brady said like, Jess, if you you write like a dirty word on your crossword, like then you're gonna be so cool. Like it was completely out of a movie, right? And so I was like, yeah, okay, okay. And I didn't know any dirty words. And so I only knew the word sex. (laughs) (laughs) So then I, I write this on the crossword and then he goes, everybody like, look what a bad girl Jess is. Like she wrote this on this crossword and and whatever. And he freaks out and shows everybody. And I just remember the most intense feeling of like shame and guilt and a huge awareness of like somehow knowing God had like watched that and seen that. And like, I was going to be out forever now. And I didn't know if I was in yet. Like I didn't, right. I just didn't know. And so I remember going home and being like, oh, and my family, like they're never going to, they're going to know like what a bad girl that I am. Right. And then for two months, cause that was like summer break. So then I was on summer break and I remember, I remember moments where like my dad was tucking me into bed or like moments with my mom and them saying like, I love you or different things and me being like, oh like the love just couldn't get in in those moments. Cause I was like, yeah, you love me, but you don't know what I did on the crossword with Brady Smith. Like it was really bad. <laughs> and so finally, like one, this is such a long winded story, but finally it all kind of came to like a point for me one night where I just couldn't handle the guilt and was kind of like, I need to, I'm going to make myself sick. And, and so then I went and found my mom and I like burst into tears and I told her all of this and like, couldn't look her in the eye and told her I'd been carrying this around since like whenever June or whatever and then she goes oh Jess like I don't remember her wording exactly but basically said because of Jesus like you don't have to be walking around with guilt like Jesus forgives us for our sins so like Jesus forgives you and makes you like clean and new and so It was a huge moment for me and I like she's like do you want to pray and ask like Jesus to to take your guilt and forgive you for like your sin um and so obviously I did and then like this is where it gets funny where I'm just like what a weird kid right (laughs) and so I take it a step further and I go and like tell my dad and I'm just like yep and now I'm gonna baptize myself and I'm gonna go have a bath and I'm gonna like because now I'm new so like I need to make that like whatever. And I think I remember my parents looking amused, like looking like, okay, Jess, like whatever you need to do, you know, anyway. So that was my big moment. And it's like written, like it was a big moment for a long time, because I wrote it, I wrote the story down in my Bible. So like, I still have that Bible. And it's like, you know, this, my mom told me to write it down. She's like, this is important. You're gonna want to remember how this, like you went from being kind of like sinner to like clean this day. So I don't know if she phrased it like that, but that's what I saw it as, right? Right. I was dirty from my sin and then became clean that day because of Jesus, so.
0: Wow. Um, (laughs) Take that what you will. (laughs) That level of guilt and awareness, like God saw that, that I wrote that word. He is, you know, he said like, I'm out before I even really knew if I was in. Is Mm -hmm. that Was that the first time you had felt that level of, of guilt and like an awareness of, oh, okay, there's like a God and I've done something that has offended Mm -hmm. him. Or when you look back, can you see, was that actually always kind of just a part of your understanding Mm -hmm. of what it meant to be in, well, not even in relationship with God, but just like God was just there.
1: I think that was, so like I, like I had, I don't remember pain until I went to school, which like sounds terrible for like trying to send your kids off to school. But like I don't remember, I remember feeling very like home if God was associated with how my family and my church and stuff was. I, you know, but also I was I was really little when that happened, right? So I think up until that point, I don't have a recollection. Yeah, I don't have a recollection of like sin where I like very clearly like committed a sin and was like, this has changed something with me until that moment, I think it definitely felt like when I went to school and when I experienced life outside of kind of what was safe to me, I was like, there's something dangerous out here. Like that's what I remember really feeling. And also like looking around and being like, why are the other kids not feeling this? Like, why, why are my parents sending me here when there's like so much, you know what I mean? And so Mm -hmm. I think that's when maybe it somehow got kind of linked with God of like, Oh, there was something safe about like, god and my family and then now it doesn't feel so safe anymore because of pain Mm -hmm. so like yeah that's my earliest memory i think of like making like sinning and then really clearly knowing like oh this goes against god and this like this may have just changed me
0: that is very intense for uh, grade three i don't even know what age that would be i guess eight maybe yeah Um, so from that point on was that level mm-hmm. of intensity, like was that just how you lived life and how you lived faith?
1: Yes, very much so. yeah, I don't have like now that I know anxiety, I'm like, why did nobody and this is not a point of finger to point a finger at my parents or anybody, but like like how did people think I was okay, right? And I think I remember I was kind of always a target for like bullying and stuff when I was that age too, but I think. Um, So like, I remember my parents really picking up on that and being like, Jess doesn't feel safe because of kids or like, because some kids are mean or whatever in her class. But like, I don't think it was ever like, it was, they could always pinpoint it and say like, oh, Jess is anxious about going to school because of this, or Jess is anxious because of that person bullying or whatever. And it was never like, oh, I have a child. There's a child here that like feels a very high level of anxiety constantly right like right it it was never it was always like oh there's a reason behind it let's fix that reason so like i was homeschooled for um the end of grade the end of grade four or like the start of grade four right because of that bullying in the grade three right like it was very much like seen as oh there's a problem like an external problem going on here so let's fix that so that she can be okay kind of thing so Yeah, no, I was definitely the kid though, like with with like Bible camp and summer camp and stuff. Like a lot of my spiritual moments, I'm like, there, there was a heightened level of anxiety around too. like show the Jesus film at Bible camp. And definitely I was bawling and like, yep let's recommit let's rededicate let's do all the things like oh my goodness my faith has been wayward for grade six right like I'm in grade six but my faith has really like my testimony like it's just ruined because you know what I mean so I definitely felt a high level of anxiety around like but I'm sure those camp counselors were like oh God is moving where I'm like looking back I'm like well anxiety was moving and then you showed me a crucifixion scene and then told me like am I going to make a choice for Jesus tonight? Right. And then like put the pieces to like, of course, a, like a sensitive child who struggles with anxiety is going to come forward and be like, it's me. It's definitely me. Like,
0: <laughs> Yeah. I joke about, I basically got saved every time I watched Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And if there's somebody oh, no. listening that doesn't know what that is, it's this elaborate play where people die And then they go to the afterlife and whether or not they're a Christian is played out. And if they're not, (gasps) Satan comes on stage and drags them off stage, kicking and screaming. The highlight, (laughs) well, highlight is the wrong word. The climax of the one that I saw was a Christian child with an unbelieving mother and Satan came out and pulled the mother away while the child is screaming. So yeah every okay. time i saw that it was like i'm not taking any chances i'm no, no. thank you no of course you wouldn't
1: no. it's like a, i don't know if insurance is the right word. like it's, no it 100 well, it's, it's like even if i think i'm doing well it's like well i better i better yeah. be sure like
0: yeah that's yeah terrifying. i can't i can't risk it oh, i'm the, no. who, who am i to judge whether or not i'm doing well i better cover all my bases
1: well sure. we have um the left behind series to thank for that
0: Yes. Right. Yeah. Like,
1: isn't it? Is, yeah. I remember reading those like really ravenously because I was like, oh my gosh, one of the people left behind was a pastor. Like I'm definitely not as good as a pastor.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. I could talk about the amount of times that I thought my parents had been raptured. Anyway, we won't get it. Maybe another time. Oh man. So moving forward then from that point, mm-hmm. looking back, how would you say that faith shaped your life?
1: Yeah. So I think I had a very I had a very low self-esteem because well lots of different reasons and stuff but like I think just a a low self-worth and a, a low sense of identity and so to me a lot of my faith was shaped around like God loves me and learning about that and kind of like but also fighting that because I felt so unlovable because I felt so ashamed and felt so anxious and so
0: was there something specific that you could point to for yourself and say like, that is the reason that I'm unlovable? Or were there just so many reasons? Or was it just the general feeling of, it was just kind of the, oh. the truth that you operated out of? Like you didn't even question yeah, it just was.
1: Oh, I, I think I felt like an overwhelming sense of guilt as a, a child. Like just so, yeah, like I didn't know you could not be like consumed by guilt, like guilt and shame. So like just feeling like, who I was wasn't good, very sensitive to, like, pain, like I said, right, like, just really did not know how to handle all of the pain that was just everywhere, and so, yeah, like, again, this, like, ties into just choices that, like, we'll get into and stuff, but, like, it tied into mental health for sure, Um, feeling like I can't be what I want to be, and I can't be normal, and I keep making these mistakes that are like shameful. And so therefore, like, it just felt so, so deeply in me that um, I can come to God when I'm doing good things and when I'm being good and God absolutely is like, does not love me and is ashamed by me when I'm not doing good. So like, I think I, I think I often had a feeling of like having everyone fooled of like, because I think, I love people. I'm very outgoing, very bubbly, like all those kind of things. I wasn't very much at school, but I was with like family and church community and stuff growing up. And my family had a really specific image, like four daughters, very image was a thing in our home. And people would make comments about like our pew at church and like, oh, they held saying girls like that's my maiden name. And so like, I think just a big sense of like, this is who I am and how people see me, but they don't know how I really am like when no one's around but God knows and so I would say that any of my faith moments were always surrounded around me like begging God to love me (laughs) so like (laughs) I have so many memories of like being at Christian concerts and like when people's eyes were closed you know when people's eyes close and their hands are out and stuff I remember every single time my eyes closing and being like trying to go through all my sins and mistakes and the ways that I had been failing and being like, like my laundry list on like, of just here's all the things, but my eyes are closed. So people are thinking I'm having this worshipful moment, but my eyes are closed. Cause I'm like telling God all the things. And then basically saying, can you still love me? Can you still love me? Right. So any of my like big faith experiences were around that growing up was was either those glimpses of being like God does love me or like another Christian speaking that over me and convinced like trying to convince me like God does love you even with all this stuff right so I did have some like authentic moments like that but also had authentic moments like that in like Christian community like in I went to boarding school was when I was in high school um and so I left home when I was like 16 from 16 to 18 at a at a high school in Saskatchewan, because I lived in BC, and, like, I have very, lots of, like, faith, big faith moments there, but it was resulting from, like, close Christian community of people that were also sharing life, and basically all of us trying to encourage each other in it, so, like, so, yes, it was, you know, a lot of that was in my mind framed around, like, that was a moment with God, but also lots of times where I'm, like, that was a moment that I said was with God, but, that was somebody loving me and caring for me and listening to my story and then telling me God loved me. Right. So I think a lot of my moments were like that. And then I don't know if like spiritually mature is the right word to say, but like eventually, like I kind of, it kind of transitioned from that to like suddenly me really caring about people, knowing God's love for them in their spot. So like it there was like a shift when I graduated high school where it was like, okay, I've had years of like, these moments of like learning about how God loves me as I am now, I want to share that with other people. So like then my faith experiences were a lot more around things like missions and calling and, you know, God having this great big plan for my life and kingdom work to be involved in. So then it became less personal to me and more about how God can use me. So does that make right. sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hmm and I mean it especially makes sense to me because you ended up at Light Patrol, which is yes. for anybody listening, that's a ministry mm-hmm. that works closely with youth living on the street and unstably housed. So and yeah. I, I know that in your time with Light Patrol, it was very clear. And I know that, you know, maybe in your head you're like, well, that was the outer part. But I, I do think it was very clear that you genuinely were deeply moved by people's pain and you really did want people to know mm-hmm. that God Love them. Like, I think that was a key part of how you understood what you were doing. Yeah. Did you feel the tension between wanting that for other people, but not being able to really experience it for yourself? Like, how did you navigate Mm -hmm. that?
1: Yeah. Like, I think I even said to you, because you coached me during that time, right? Like, I think I even would say sometimes the only ways that I encountered God seemed to be like almost a flow of like God's love flowing through me and not staying with me and moving to that person. And like, I spent like hours and hours trying to like be alone with God during that time and trying. So I think I got really, really solid in my head about God for me, right? Like, okay, I'm going to go to a coffee shop and spend four hours reading these parts of scripture about God's love. And I'm going to like, really real. Cause they really stress that in ministry. Right. They really mm-hmm. say like, you know, you can't pour out of an empty cup kind of thing. Right. Like you need to be nurturing that relationship with God. So like, I feel like I took that really seriously when I worked for a ministry for that ministry. Right. But I don't, I don't know that like, yeah, I, I I, have not experienced that like in my like physical, like lived experience, I guess of like, not in my head. So I don't know if that makes sense but like so I feel like I would I would spend put in a lot of that time to try to realize like I really need to know this for myself and I'm going to write out all these prayers to you God and I'm going to like spend all this time trying to kind of know this for myself but yeah like that that has been really that's been it's been very hard for me to actually like settle settle into like God's love right that was kind of, it felt like that was almost my, you know, when I'm talking to someone who is homeless on the street with a drug addiction, right? I'm like, you've got all this pain going on. I can't experience God's love. (laughs) But like, I know, right. So it kind of felt like, like a bit of like, well, this is my cross to bear, like, is I'm so sure of God's love for you. But like, I can't actually, I don't know how to feel it for me. Right. And so like, there were times of like, almost where it felt comforting to be around somebody from that was so, you know what I mean? Cause I'd be like, I trust that God accepts you in your addiction and in your homelessness. I trust that God accepts me in my inability to receive God's love, right? right. Or like my lack of knowing what to do. So I think it almost comforted me sometimes. And then I actually started to feel way more uncomfortable in like really like Christian settings, to be honest, right? Where I felt more like it's a cliche, but feeling more like I I felt like I fit in more with the people on the outside than I did on the inside, um, because I could resonate a lot more with like, yeah, your pain isn't getting better. Right. <laughs> You're, yeah. You know what I mean. You're not singing a worship song and have it go away. You're not listening to a sermon and being like, oh, the Holy Spirit just completely transformed my my whole life. In that, you know what I mean. And yeah. so I think I resonated with it a ton more talking to that homeless woman who says you know I'm I'm in this life but I I talk to God every night before I go to sleep and I resonate a lot more with that of like you are slugging it out knowing that things might not change that you might not be able to change them right or for whatever your circumstances are they didn't get better for you but like you still with that like last breath of the day are like well good night God (laughs) Right? Yeah. So I re- I re- related a lot more to that. So I think that's what kind of made me not yeah, help me navigate it, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. I think that's that's been a bit of my experience too. I am curious. Mm-hmm. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the way that I try and explain it for my own self is like the difference between objective and subjective truth, right? So, it sounds like you going to the coffee shop and reading Mm -hmm. the bible for four hours and like all these verses about god's love like you knew in your mind objectively Mm -hmm. like yes this is who god is yeah but subjectively like in terms of your own experience where you are the one who's receiving the love didn't make sense like incompatible you could not but could you feel subjectively god's love for the people that you were working Mm -hmm. with like was there something inside of you that it went Mm -hmm. beyond just the head part where it was actually like no, like something inside of me knows that mm-hmm. this is what God's love feels like for this person.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I would say that like, that's why I really like people in a way that's the gift to me in that moment is like, I get to be around this person in pain and I get to feel something from God because I'm around you. Right. Like, right. and I think just, I equated sometimes like when I would have an emotional response to something. Or when someone, you know, someone's crying and telling me something and I'm seeing that there's just something that has to be so much bigger, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because I'm feeling at a loss for words. I can't fix it. I can't change anything, but I can hug that person and I can, and for some reason, the words like praying for someone in that moment come very quickly, right? To me, cause I'm like, well, to heck if I know what you need, but you do need, you do need a hug, <laughs> You Mm -hmm. do need, you do need to know that this hug comes from beyond just me because I have to go soon. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, I really felt this sense of like, if it's just me giving you this hug right now, like that's not, that's not that helpful. But if it's, if it's somehow, if you can equate that hug and that like me listening to you and caring about you and If you can somehow know that there was something bigger happening, then like, then we both kind of need to remember that. Like, I need to know there was something bigger happening too, because otherwise it's, I don't know, it's pretty hopeless. Right. So, but then like, then there's the other dicey part of like, well, what does that mean for someone to be like, I only feel God's love when I'm around people in pain? Right. Because then you're also like, is that healthy? (laughs) Like, to only surround your life with people in pain so that you, yeah, it gets a little wonky about what do you believe about God? Because I started to really struggle around happy Christians. Mm -hmm. Like, right. I, because I was really getting one side of that of like, I had a hard time with Christians that were like, you know, the whole, the joy of the Lord and of your strength and like things like that, of, of just kind of talking about how this is, if you're following God, this is what it can do in your life. And this is what it can produce in your life but I really felt like, yeah, about what about when it doesn't <laughs> like yeah. if that, so I really, really wrestled at that time, I think with, with going to church or, or being in Christian, really Christian settings where it was like, there's a really clear trajectory of what following God produces in your life and joy being one of those things that I always felt really like, I don't feel joy a lot of the time with God. Like I feel, you know what I mean? So, and if that person going back to just the light patrol examples, right? Like if that person is just experiencing a life of pain and is not experiencing joy, then does that mean they're somehow less than? And and then again, if I relate more to that person, then what does that mean that I'm less than too? So I just really started really struggling with like, well, this this seems really contradicting each other,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. Do you think that your Role with Light Patrol. And I know before you came to Light Patrol, you were with another missions organization in the city. Yeah. Were those ways of you kind of fighting against the shame and like trying to do something where it's like, look, God, like you can love me because I'm, mm. you know, I'm sacrificing, I raise my own salary. Like I, yeah. you know, like all these things. Is that, mm. does that play at least a part in your understanding as a calling as a missionary?
1: Yes. Yeah. Like it did. It gave me a feeling of value right like in in the eyes of people right like like it was really hard and sometimes because also like people are telling you you're amazing constantly right and being like wow like you just have such an amazing calling on your life like there's like sometimes it would just feel like almost overwhelming pressure of like okay like again talking about how I could do very when I was growing up like that image right of people all see me a certain way. And then would they still see me that way if they knew how I was struggling? Right. Right. So I think I never fully felt like I would feel I felt valuable because I was like, I'm doing really, I am doing important work. Anyone doing, working with people in crisis is doing important work because you're, you're choosing to put yourself in someone else's pain. So that always is important, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and join somebody in their, in their hardship. Right. So like, I, I could feel that and realize I'm doing something valuable and important. But I would also feel like, you know, people are starting to see me and they're not starting, but like people are seeing me as this amazing person, this amazing young missionary, who's got this huge calling on her life, but they don't know, or maybe some of them did, but like, they don't all know, like, how deeply I struggle, like with my mental health. And like, they don't know how deeply that I you know, how I so frequently am messing up and there, there's just not a lot. Yeah. It it felt like I couldn't really ever feel like safe or secure, I guess, of just doing and being what I was (laughs) like, Mm. it just, it just felt like, yeah, it was kind of like a tug of war, like a, I didn't know how to settle into it because I just felt like people are seeing me a certain way but also equating my whole life to a calling from God. And I, they don't know how, maybe how deeply I wrestle with God and how deeply I wrestle with myself, but kind of painting this, like, I guess, a really, a really like good version, I guess, of my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, it kind of it made it so, like, because I'm always doing this work, it always means that I'm up here. Like, it always means that I'm good. So, like, I always come out on top at the end, even if I, like, have a moment where I tell someone I'm struggling, it's like, oh, but, like, look at the call God has in your life, right?
0: Right, yeah. So, I
1: never felt, it never changed people's perspective, I guess, like. Right. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I guess. So, in a way, it could function as it was, like, not a mask necessarily, but it was a status that you could never really lose because you were always... You were always oh, yeah. that as well, right? Like no matter what you said, it was like, yeah, but you're, you know, look at yeah. you doing this, doing this work with the the homeless youths.
1: Well, like I would go home, I would go home. And I remember this, this ra- random people connect with you after they realize what like, you know what I mean? Like kind of word got around, I guess, about the ministry is doing and people thinking it was just amazing. Right. And it is, it's amazing work, right. It is amazing. Mm-hmm. But like, it, it kind of it felt like you're walking like PowerPoint for homelessness like it felt like you're a walking like oh I want you to come to my youth group I want you to come speak to this church I want you to like so it, it felt very like okay I have now so when I would go home I won't say like what church or anything like I, I remember sitting in one of my family members churches and having random people coming up and asking me things and and just wanting to like encourage me and stuff, but saying like, oh, could you speak to this or could you do this or whatever? And I was like deeply, deeply troubled at that point, like really struggling with my mental health. And I was like crying during the serve, like I was not okay. And I told one of them that, and I was just like, I'm actually really, really not in a place of being able to talk about any of this. And they're like, we just know it'll be so encouraging. And they just wouldn't like take it. And I was like, I guarantee it will not be encouraging because I don't even know what I believe anymore. Like, you know (laughs) what I mean? it was just so funny because I was like, some people were just really determined of like, this is how this is like, this is this picture I have of you and it's not going to change no matter Mm -hmm. what you tell me or like, yeah. So it felt, it felt really like, it doesn't matter how broken you are, the mission of God will prevail. And that's what we want. We want the mission, no matter how broken you are, we want to hear about the mission. And what I started really feeling was like, um, that's a ton of pressure (laughs) to be like, I don't know if that makes perfect any sense, but it, it was overwhelmed. It got to be very overwhelming for me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you've mentioned your mental health a couple of times. And I think clearly, as you discussed, there was Certainly, anxiety going on uh, to a pretty high degree from fairly early in your life. So when you reflect back, how do you understand kind of that part of your story? Like, when did it start? What did it? When would you say your first awareness of it was? And then how did it develop and kind of shape your life as you grew up?
1: It, yeah, it it seems to go back to, not and and now that I'm like, now that I'm like parenting someone, I'm just so so aware of like how. How you really, really want to, like how you really want to help a child um, learn how to navigate what's going on inside of them, and and teach them what to do with what's going on, and if at the bare minimum, teach them how to share with their safe adults about what's going on inside of them, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I would say I didn't learn how to do that. Um, I have so many wonderful things about what I did learn growing up, but I didn't learn what to do with the anxiety, the discomfort, the pain, um, like intense fear, like all of those things. I didn't learn how to regulate all those things. So
0: was that because, sorry, was that because in your family, there was no model for that? Or did you actually feel like it was actively discouraged? Like, you know, we can talk a lot about the happy things and when things are going well, but you can't really come to the family Mm -hmm. with struggles or uncertainty or fear.
1: Yes. So like, I would say that like we didn't, we didn't ever see conflict in my family. You know, if my parents thought it was in their, it was in their bedroom. It was very, if my mom or I shouldn't like say specific people, but like if, if certain people in my family were feeling emotional or upset, it was very clear that like they would go to their room, get out what they needed to and then come back with a smile. And so it was very, it was just kind of how the family functioned. Right. And so I was a super sensitive kid with like, so it was a known thing in my family that like we had to be really careful what movie I watched because a movie everyone else would be fine with. I would be like, I'd leave halfway through and like be bawling in the bathroom about it. Right. So like things like that, it became very like, yep, Jess is really sensitive and really like, we got to be really careful what she watches and what she's exposed to because she is Um, But it was almost, it was compassionate. They were compassionate with me, but also it was like amusing sometimes, right? So like, I really was like, okay, why is nobody else like not sleeping tonight when they watch the Hunchback of Notre Dame? Like, why are you all going to sleep like normal people? Like, I just remember feeling like there was acceptable emotion, like sadness and stuff was an acceptable thing. Um, But it was also very clear that like everyone else is kind of figuring managing their own things without bringing it to the family table, whereas I remember bringing it to the table because I couldn't control it. I would just like be a mess about it Mm -hmm. and then realizing like I feel a, a real level of this stuff that like none of them are feeling or they're just dealing with. So another layer of like once I went to school was realizing like I'm not protected So I have to figure out how to manage this, all this stuff. And so those are the things kind of leading up to having an eating disorder. I remember being a pretty young age, like either, I think it was nine, like, I think it was eight or nine. And I, I don't even know how I got the idea. But basically, I was like, I am going to, like, I think my parents had gone out or something or gone for a walk and I had access to the kitchen and no one was there. Um, maybe my sister was in her room or something. And I remember thinking, like, I can, I'm going to eat a whole bunch of food that feels good. And then because I can't keep it in, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it was such like a, such a, con- like, such a, a moment of being like, this is going to feel really good. This is going to, this is going to help me with the horrible day at school. I just experienced, I'm just going to figure out how to manage this kind of thing. Looking, obviously, I don't know if I thought that intelligently about it, but like looking back, I'm like, that was a pretty calculated thing. Like they left and I was like, I'm going to eat all of this. And then I'm going to throw up in the bathroom. So I remember doing that and being like wow this is because clearly i had a message at that point of like our family image was to be to grow up and be thin and beautiful like and so i think that was definitely in my head of like it was an instinct of like this food can help soothe something with this pain but like i can't get bigger so i need to deal with this (laughs) so like i i need to figure out a way to be able to to stay small and grow up small so that nobody sees anything but like I can still manage this stuff going on with me. So I didn't realize like I, on that day when I did it, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll maybe just do this once in a while kind of thing. Um, and I remember doing it at family gatherings. We'd have big buffets and we had family gatherings. So it was really easy to like eat a bunch of food and then go in the basement bathroom and go throw up and come back and keep being like bubbly and fun. And nobody knew. And so I remember that kind of being a great solution for me, but then also being a great source of shame, right? Like I was figuring out how to manage this, but then also like when I was talking about the feeling unlovable and all that, it was all directly related to that of just what is wrong with you? Like you're gross, what are you doing? And so, yeah, even having memories of like, I used to like bring a bucket to my room at night time. And then like, if I didn't have a chance to throw up whatever we had like eaten with a movie or something with my family, I'd be like, Oh, it's okay. I've got a bucket under my bed. I can deal with that after they all go to sleep. So, so a real clear, like there was like a emptying feeling relief, feeling like I've managed this and, but then a huge sense of shame. So that kind of was the start of it. And then that lasted for
0: years. (laughs) The shame, like what you're describing actually sounds very similar to kind of the addiction cycle, right? Where there's mm-hmm. the, tr- the trigger of whatever happens that causes you, you just feel like you can't handle it. And so, you know, that's where the substance yeah. use comes in. And then after the substance use is the shame, which then yeah. spins you back into the substances, right? To deal with the shame. So very young, eight or nine, mm-hmm. was the trajectory of it, did it start out kind of slow? And then it it increased in frequency or has it been pretty, at least over those Mm -hmm. years, was it pretty stable in terms of how often you were doing it and the role that it was playing in your life?
1: Yeah, it was all like, I've since done lots of therapy with it. And something I learned was that like an eating disorder is just, it's kind of a mental illness that's looking for opportunities all the time. So like, um, I don't know if that is the right way to say it, but just if there's an opportunity, like, even if I had a very full, full week, there would be little pockets of time where I wouldn't be monitored or think So like, it would look different on any given week. So, you know, if I was at a sleepover, if I was at summer camp if things, it would look different because I wouldn't have windows of opportunity in the same way. So like the first thing I, I did when I got to that boarding school, when I was 15, um, 15 turning 16, was I saw, oh great, there's a private bathroom. So like, Instantly, I would I got used to finding the opportunities wherever I went, which like maybe that's what people with addiction, like other addictions do as well Is kind of how can I keep up appearances kind of thing and keep doing like the life things I need to be doing. But then, okay, where are the windows of time so that I'm alone, that there's privacy, that I have access to what I need to be able to do the ritual of it. Right. So. Right. Yeah. So I would say like it would when I was in high school, it was it was every day. It was every day for a long time. And then maybe every other day, sometimes if I was, when I started telling people then that's kind of when accountability was introduced to me, I guess, was then maybe you can, you know, when, when you tell someone your struggle, then you can tell them when you're tempted. So it was hard because it was very framed as a struggle and not as a a disorder maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, or something, so like I, I very, I very much thought, you know, this is the same as I don't know, like any kind of temptation that like, oh, like, I don't know, trying to think of something, but like, so, so I think I would do it less if I told a friend or my roommate or something in high school and said, you know, I, I'm trying not to throw up today or I'm trying not to binge today. Maybe you can like hang by me after dinner or like me, you know, so I would try to do those things if I was doing like having a good, like also God day of like, God, I'm really going to try. I'm really going to try. And then, yeah. So it kind of, yeah, it, it was, it was up and down. Right. And it also depended on what I was restricting too. So if I was, if I was having a, a week um, at a friend's cottage or something and I could really manage the food, maybe I would think, oh, I can't throw up here as much because the bathroom is right in the living, near the living room and they'll hear me. So I'm really going to have to restrict that week. So it was always very disordered.
0: That's so interesting that you say how it wasn't framed as like a mental illness or a disorder it was it was like a moral thing right like it was a sin that you had to fight against and so whenever you failed it wasn't Mm -hmm. illness it was Mm -hmm. sinning oh yeah oh
1: and it was something disqualifying you from from being a whole christian that's what it felt like um like a healthy whole christian it was always that thing of like you are not a healthy whole christian you're like a broken christian So like, you're not, you're not up where you should be. So it was very much like a, even beyond the moral, it was very like, this is, yeah, you're not fully what you're meant to be. You're broken.
0: So how did that shape your understanding of like who you were as a Christian and, and how Mm -hmm. you saw God?
1: I remember, okay. I remember when I was a kid and we were going to Vancouver for like a, a hockey game or something. And I remember seeing a homeless person. And, and like this, these are one of those parenting things where like, I'm sure my parent didn't mean to like come across this way, but it came across as like, um, kind of disregarding where they, I was like, mom, they're asking for food. And then they said, um, uh, they're just going to go buy drugs with it. Don't give them food. Don't, don't give them money. Right. right. And I remember being like, huh, it impacted me of just is that the truth about people? Like, you know what I mean? Like, is that person less valuable and less because of their, their pain and what they're doing? And so like, in a way it was starting, like my family will say, like, there were things percolating in you about you, you knew certain things were not, it wasn't right. And that you knew different things about God from an early age, because you questioned things pretty early. So I remember questioning it and saying like that, does that make them less, less valuable to like God or to people because of them being on the street and having and, and using drugs, right? So like, I feel like I always knew, these things don't disqualify you from God or make you less valuable. So I always knew it looking at other people, right? Like I have those memories of being like, I knew, I knew when looking at that person that there was nothing different about them than me. But yeah, like, I didn't get those messages for myself, I guess, but it was like, it was almost a protectiveness of like, or defensive, maybe like, I don't want that person to ever feel that way, the way that I feel. Right. Or like, I already, like, I feel intense shame about these different things. I don't want that person to feel that way about God. So I almost want to hope for a God that's different than the God that's to me. Like I almost, it almost kept me like spurred me on of like, there has to be a better God than my God for that person. (laughs)
0: Like,
1: wow, which sounds really sounds yeah. honest.
0: That's what it sounds like. Yeah, that's the end of the first part of my interview with Jess. Please check back next Friday when I'm going to release the second part of our conversation. That's our show for today. Special thanks to Mark Calvitis for the podcast cover art. This podcast deals with some pretty serious topics. If you are struggling with your mental health or are thinking about suicide please reach out to a trusted friend or some other person you know loves and cares for you. There are also professional supports available. Please go online and visit Crisis Services Canada to find the distress centers and crisis organizations nearest you or call the Canada Suicide Prevention Service at 1-833-456-4566. They are available to talk 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you are under 29, the Kids Help Phone has professional counselors available to provide confidential and anonymous care. Call them toll-free at 1-800-668-6868 or text the word CONNECT to 686868. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions about today's or any other episode, please email podcastdarkly21 at gmail.com. If you appreciate and enjoy this podcast, please subscribe or give it a rating on whichever podcast app you use, since apparently that makes it more likely other people will find it. Finally, because it's always good to end with a blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. As always, thanks for listening.